as I see all those uh, words go by and all those phrases, I realize we've got a lot to talk about. A lot of very interesting things to talk about. A lot of questions to answer. Uh, the last few weeks have been, I believe in God the Father Almighty. That's all we've got covered so far. And I'll pick the pace up, but I felt it important to go slow in the beginning. Uh, what you believe matters. So we talked a lot about I believe in God. And starting from the point of what I believe now drives who I am, how I live my life, and everything that flows out of my life, I believe is the first. I believe in God the Father. I talked about God the Father last week, why we use the term Father. Uh, then uh, uh, Pastor Jeremy and I uh, did a pretty lengthy podcast this week on really a lot of that language, so be sure you listen to that. It'll help reinforce those ideas we talked about, uh, that you don't think of God in the same bodily sense that we do in the, in the masculine form. It has nothing to do with diminishing the feminine. Anyway, we'll talk more about that. Grab that podcast. It'll be very informative. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. We talked about Almighty. And matter of fact, some of, uh, some of our, I saw some of our church families watching uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, this week. And uh, uh, the, there's that Ark of the Covenant scene, if you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and uh, the one where everybody's face melts because God's presence, uh, you know, comes out of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, they, they were, kids were watching that. And and uh, we had a little love exchange with the parents. And I said, yeah, that's a, that's a great scene that describes God Almighty. Well, what's Almighty? Why were the Israelites, why were the children of Israel scared to hear God talk from Mount Sinai that they ran away and said, Moses, you talk to God. We don't want to talk to him. That scene is a good reason why. Because your face will melt, okay? Uh, it, 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 he is almighty, all-powerful. And I think we have trouble comprehending God almighty as in pure energy, as in a, 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 a omnipotent, all-powerful being and what his presence would mean to us and I understand why the children of Israel were fearful. Last week we talked about God being both and. Do you remember that conversation? No, it's not, it's not just God is love or God is kindness or God is, God is both. And then Exodus 34 describes God as a both and. It's actually God describes himself in his own words as a both and God. And uh, today I want to take it to the last part of the, there's three I believe sections in the Apostle Creed. We'll have finished the first I believe section after this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I want to talk about creator and heaven and earth this morning. I want to challenge your understanding. Now, this is a cornerstone thing. We don't come to church on Sunday just to rehash what we learned in Sunday school 50 years ago. We come here to be challenged from the Word of God about what we believe and, and, and be able to explain what we believe. The Apostles' Creed is the Bible summarized in just a little over a hundred words. And the reason we're studying it so that we'll understand what we believe and we can articulate it in a succinct way that follows a Trinitarian statement about creation, redemption, and sanctification, how we live our lives. Let me begin right here. Uh, as I'm teaching through the Apostles' Creed to you, uh, I realize you bristle at certain words in the creed. I've talked about this extensively for weeks. 
if this is your first time back in three or four weeks, you need to go listen to the previous sermons before you pledge your allegiance to the Holy Catholic Church, okay? I realize you bristle at certain words in the creed. The creed is not Roman Catholic. And you need to go listen to those sermons for to fill in those gaps in your understanding. Let, let me begin with this. I, I think for most of us that we have, in this modern era, become completely distrustful of words. Uh, and I understand why. It's very easy to become distrustful of words because you're bombarded with so many words. You can't tell which words are true, so you learn to be distrustful of all words. For example, when we hear politicians make promises, we are rightfully skeptical. Is that fair? We're rightfully skeptical. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not a young guy. and In my 53 years, I've seen only a couple of presidents in my lifetime try to keep the promises that they've made. So when politicians make promises, we are rightfully skeptical because we have some history with politicians. We don't really believe they'll keep their promises when we hear them giving their stump speech on the campaign trail, making promises. Let me take it a step further. We've been so bombarded with marketing in the modern era. Just now it's specialized. You guys know that if you are Facebookers or whatever, and you're just in the living room talking about, you know, honey, we need to buy a new car. You know, honey, we need a blender. Uh, you know, honey, we... The next thing you know, your Facebook feed is showing, you know, Vitamix and KitchenAid and here come the blenders. You say, why? Because your microphone is always on. That's why. And you've got Alexa and uh, she's always listening and, uh, you know, and you've got Siri and she's always listening and the, the, all of those conversations are going somewhere. And if you don't think I'm telling the truth, test it. You will find out very quickly that your conversations are being listened to so that they can target specifically the things they know you want and need and get you to purchase those things. But we've been so bombarded by marketing words and marketing slogans that we now don't really take any of them seriously. You understand what I'm saying? I've eaten a lot of cheeseburgers in my life. I've never got one that looks like the commercial. And I don't mean I've eaten like three cheeseburgers. I mean, between Brad and I, we've probably eaten 10,000 cheeseburgers, okay? We never got one out of the 10,000, Brad, that looked like the Burger King commercial burger looked. I saw him advertising a chicken sandwich the other way. The, the chicken was this thick. It had breading that was this thick all the way around it. It was going to be crunchy and savory and juicy in this fresh baked bun. I haven't gone to get one yet because I don't want to be disappointed. I mean, I like the image better than I know the reality is going to be when I go to order the thing and the chicken's about this thick, the breading's about this thick, and it's in a soggy bun. I, it'll just be discouraging. But because of our experiences, we've become distrustful of marketing slogans. Everything's new and improved, and in reality, they are neither. That's what we've learned through experiences. Now, I want to take a step further. It also applies to us in a very personal way. We lack confidence in our own words because we as individuals have a track record also of not keeping our promises and living up to our own words of commitment. And we know if I don't keep all of my words, then why should I expect you to keep your words? 
I mean, Letty could say some nice words to me about things she's going to do, but if, if I say some things to her and I know I don't have a good track record of keeping my promises and my commitments and I'm going to do better and I'm going to be on time and I'm going to give more and I'm going to be more. If I can't keep my own words, then I'm distrustful automatically that she's not going to keep her words. Does that make sense? We project onto other people our own track record of keeping our own words. Now, I bring all of this up because we're studying words that are 2,000 years old that have been passed down through the Christian church. I mean, from generation to generation, these are old words. And these are somebody else's words that they have passed down to us. And the danger we fall into this morning is that we become so distrustful of words that we also mistrust words that are true words. We also mistrust words that are expressing things that are absolutely the way God said they were. So I want to caution you this morning, before you're distrustful of everything, pause for a moment and ask yourself, are there not some words that are true and verifiable and words worth living by and words that make a difference and words that contain something that is so profound that it anchors us to the past even as we move into the future? In the modern generation, we've assumed that the truest words are the words we have to say. In other words, I'm distrustful of your words, but if I say something, it's worth, it's worth saying, it's worth knowing, it's, it's worth hearing. We distrust others' words. We, we disbelieve if somebody else tells us it's true, we are skeptical of that. And the dilemma we face is most of what we know and believe is on the basis of someone else's words. I want you to think about this for a minute. The dilemma you're going to find yourself in if you're a skeptic of all words is most of what you know to be true, most of what you believe has not been independently verified by you. You took someone else's words that those things were true. But you think about that for a minute. For instance, you can't go back personally and verify all the events of history actually happened. They tell me that somebody signed a Declaration of Independence. Were you there? You've maybe seen a copy. You've read accounts. You've taken someone else's words for it. We were told that there was a shot heard around the world. And were you there to hear it? No, you took someone else's words for it that it actually happened. What I'm saying is there's no way for you to verify everything in history happened as it has been reported, but you've accepted the testimonies of the people that were there who have expressed in words, their words, what they witnessed and what they lived through and what they experienced, and they passed those words to you. Let me make it simpler because I'm losing some of you. I can see. Can you dim my lights just, just a hair in my eyes so I can see eye contact here with some people? It's too bright. It's like being in the headlights. I can't see you. But let me make it a little simpler. You cannot travel to every dot on the map to verify that the place actually exists. Has anybody here been to Hong Kong? Mary and I can verify for you that it's there. Now, Mary, how do you know it's there? She was born there. 
So maybe you've never been to Hong Kong and likely you will never go to Hong Kong. How do you know there is a Hong Kong? Because you're going to take the words of somebody who's been there and witnessed it and experienced it and lived there and knows about it and let them tell you about that place. Now, some of you are, uh, you, you grew up and you love to travel and you're trying as best you can to verify that every, every dot is on the map. Uh, I hear there is an Iceland. I've never seen it yet. But I've taken the word for others who've been there and loved it and said they would go back and I'd like to go see the Northern Lights and see Iceland. Uh, I can verify that some of those places are there for you and you can verify that some of those places are there for me. But my point is you're not going to be able to travel the whole world and verify that there, some of you have never seen the Mississippi River. Is there anybody here who's never seen the Mississippi River? Okay, right there. Is there anybody here who's seen the Mississippi River? All right, so ask any of these people and they'll be glad to describe it for you. It's very muddy, by the way, and very murky and very windy and very wide and uh, maybe not what you've expected. You see what I'm saying? You're going to have to take somebody's words that these things are actually as they are. Moreover, your family fabric is woven together with threads of trust. Your family foundation is held together with the cement of trust. Trust holds a family together. You with me so far? Trust holds a family together. So how do you know your mother and father are actually your mother and father? There's something to contemplate this afternoon. There's no way for you to go back and witness your own conception. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? There's no way to do that. How do you know your parents are your parents? You see, you have to trust the words of your mom and dad that they are, in fact, your mom and dad. And if you said to your mom and dad, I don't buy it. I'm going to seek independent verification that you're my parents. By seeking independent verification, you would diminish the words of your parents. And you would diminish the trust that you have relationally with them. What I'm saying to you is without trust, we are paralyzed in this life. And without trust, we'll never be able to adopt that attitude of trusting one another and, and believing others. Work. In other words, some people are skeptical to a very critical fault. Now, I don't mind verifying and I don't mind testing. And you'll see I'm going to push back on a whole lot of tradition this morning. But what I want to say to you is when presented with a set of facts that are verified by 2,000 years of Christians that this is the way it is, you ought to start feeling pretty good about that. And, and if a batch of Christians come along in the modern era and say, we want to divorce ourselves from these 2,000 years of Christianity, they're all wrong, and suddenly we're all right, then I want you to test that a little bit too, okay? But I want you to overall understand that you can trust words. Words are trustworthy if they come from trustworthy people. And this is what your Bible is. These are the words of God through men and women passed down to you about events that actually happened. And they have stood the test of time and they have been verified now by people who have lived them out. The creed speaks of many things, as you were going to get to, that are quite mysterious. Resurrections and eternal lives and descending to the deads and uh, 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 yeah 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 the the creed speaks of many things God Almighty listen the Trinitarian statement itself things that are very mysterious 
and you may not be able to verify them immediately, but if you will believe in God the Father Almighty, then Jesus Christ, His only Son, and in the Holy Spirit, if you will believe and you will trust in God as you now live your life in that belief, the verification will manifest itself. You know, there's phrases in the Bible that say things like this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now let me ask you a question. You like pepperoni pizza? Listen, we had vanilla homemade ice cream last night. Mm. That's just 4th of July, isn't it? Vanilla, vanilla homemade ice cream. And when you put that into your mouth... Now, if you'd never tasted homemade vanilla ice cream, you wouldn't know what we're talking about. And I would say to you, taste and see if this is not the best thing that you've ever put in your mouth. Okay? And then when you did, you would say, oh my goodness, where has this been all my life? And what am I missing? You're missing about 100 calories of spoonfuls, what you're missing. But anyway, that's what you're missing. And uh, it's, it's that way with following God. Until you believe, you're never going to fully experience the truthfulness of all of it. And when you go down that path with God and embrace Him and embrace Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness and start living a new life in Christ filled with the Spirit, you're going to say, oh my goodness, this is all true. It's exactly as they told me. I'm becoming a new creature in Christ. I'm becoming transformed. I'm thinking differently. I'm acting differently. And that's why we're studying these words. And I know you're skeptical of words, but I want you to trust in some words that have been proven to be true. Let's look at these words today. Creator of heaven and earth. Now let me give you a little bad news mixed in with the good news and try to sort some things out that uh, baggage we have from our tradition. 400 years before Jesus Christ. So I want you to go back 2,000 to Jesus. Now I want you to back up another 100, 400 that puts you at the close of the Old Testament, back, back before Christ. 400 years before Christ, Greek philosophers such as Plato taught that the material world was evil. Now I want you to hang on every word right here. 400 years before Christ, the Greek philosophers were teaching, such as Plato, were teaching the material world you see around you is an evil world. And I'm going to make generalizations. You don't have to email me. I know, I've studied it. But generalizations, Platonism is generally the idea that the body, fleshly body, and the material world around you is evil. Platonism is generally like the material world is evil and the spiritual world out there is good. This is just a shadow of what actually exists. You think this is real, that's more real. And this is evil and corruptible and bad. And one day you'll get released and you'll go live in the spiritual world, which is good. Now let's start fast forwarding. 400 years that was taught. Jesus Christ comes along. He's making disciples. And then about the second century. So the Jesus, the apostles, their disciples. Now that generation, actually the generations where the creed is starting to be pulled together, the apostles' creed. The church fathers' generation, after the, the original apostles, those church fathers now are on the scene teaching. A guy rose up named Marcion. And, and in that era, Platonism was merged with Christianity by teachers, famous Christian, air quotes, teachers named Marcion, 2nd century. 
Now, Marcion taught a dualism. Don't lose me. Marcion taught this. That the universe was created by a wicked Old Testament God. That whoever did the creating in the Old Testament was an evil God who made this material world. And we know He's evil because the good God that exists sent Jesus Christ to this earth. And because Jesus is so much different in this violence and everything you see in the Old Testament, there must be two gods. One evil made all of the material world in our bodies. And then a good benevolent God sent Jesus Christ down here to get it all fixed up and to get it all corrected. So the summary is, they took Platonism and merged Christianity with it. And they said the material world, evil, bad. The spiritual world is good. Now, here's what you want to know. The early church fathers, the, the disciples of the disciples, the disciples of the apostles, the followers of the original followers, pe- people like Irenaeus and Tertullian and Justin Martyr, they blasted Marcion. And they said, you are a heretic teaching this nonsense of dualism, that there's an evil God and a good God. And they, the early church fathers, totally rejected Platonism, and this merging of Platonism with Christianity that Marcion was preaching and was teaching. Now, you may be asking yourself this morning, Pastor, why do I care about these history lessons? I'm glad you asked. Because a good bit of Platonism found it in through the centuries all the way into your tradition. This is why. The reason I bring all of this up, just like I said last week, you can create your own God and slap Yahweh on it, and how offensive that would be to God. You can create your own version of Christianity here in the modern era if you're not anchored to the history of the past and understand what the issues were and what they lived through. And a great deal of this dualism, a great deal of Marcion, a great deal of Plato and paganism has found its way right into the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever convention you came from or whatever tradition you came from, because we're all mixed up here this morning. We come from all kinds of backgrounds. But don't be shocked if Platonism found its way right into your tradition. Now, I get blasted all the time about, uh, you know, why don't we do it this way? Why don't we listen? I, I left the pulpit last week, got corrected twice before I got to the back door. It's just part of my life, okay? And I want you to know, if you come and correct me after the sermon, I'm basically going to smile and then walk away and blow you off. All right. So now, here's what I'm saying. I, a lot of times people say to me, Pastor, I want to go back to the old ways. And a great many of the hymns from the past reflect the idea that the body is bad, the earth is evil, And if we could just somehow fly away to God's celestial shore and we could get out of this material realm and into the spiritual realm, then all will be well at last. It's It's Platonism. It's paganism. Just slid right into the hymns. Now, I get it. I grew up singing it. I'm sentimental. But don't mistake nostalgia with biblical correctness. I'm nostalgic about a lot of things. I watch the Grinch that stole Christmas every year. But the Grinch is not real. 
I watch it just because I get feelings of nostalgia and being a little kid, okay? It makes me feel good. And if it makes you feel good to sing that, then you just rock out to it, okay? You just go. Put it on and just go. And I'm not being critical. I'm being serious. If it, if it helps you worship God, but I just want you to know the words you're singing are not theologically correct. Let me see if I can make it worse for you. <laughs> just over in glory land, we'll live eternally. The saints on every hand are shouting victory. Their songs of sweetest praise drift back from heaven's shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. This world is not my home. Now, I get it. I get nostalgic when you sing it. I can sing, I see our old country song leader up there and almost hear a banjo in the background and somebody on the juice harp. Okay? I get it. I feel the nostalgia too. But the message is not from the Bible. You say, but pastor, that's this world is not our home. Listen to me carefully. You are a human. This world is your home. If this world's not your home, then pray tell what is your home. I've read Genesis. This world was created for you. You were created from the earth for the earth to rule over the earth. If you're not an earthling, then what is an earthling? This world is not my home. This world is precisely your home. If it's not your home, then whose home is it? Let me make it worse. Our loved ones are not staying in heaven for eternity. Somehow we've got this all messed up. Our loved ones are going to experience a resurrection. And then they're going to... Come back to the earth. To rule and reign with Jesus Christ because he's not in heaven. He came back to the, you believe in the second coming and that's in the creed. We'll talk about that later. I want to challenge some of your thinking this morning. God is not bad. God is good. Creation is not bad. Creation is good. Six times in the opening chapter on the first page of your Bible, six times you'll hear God say, it's good. Oh man, that's good. And I'm going to make this. Whoa, that's good. Now I'm going to make this. Wow, that's good. And everything on the first page of your Bible about creation, about the animal kingdom, about the sun, moon, and stars, about the material world, God said, it's good, it's good, it's good. But it's likely you've been taught just the opposite. Because of Platonism crept into your Christianity, you've been taught that the earth is bad. Doesn't matter if we trash it. We're not those liberal green tree huggers. Who cares about the world? Jesus is going to make it all new again anyway. That's not a biblical position, guys. That's anti-biblical. The earth is good and God put you here to be stewards of it. Yes, it gets a resurrection, but that doesn't mean you can act like a fool until it gets its resurrection. You have to live here. Do you want to poison the water you drink? 
Is that being a good steward of what God made and said, this is good, and now you make it bad somehow? What right do you have to make bad what God has created good? Now, I just want us to get kind of all together synced up in our heads. It's very likely that you were taught in your tradition, don't worry about your body. Who cares if it goes to seed? You'll get a new one in the resurrection. Listen, the problem is you might live longer than you expect to. You know, when you're 20, it's like a lot of things don't matter. When you get to be 60, things start to matter. Or 50. Or 40. <laughs> they start to matter. And you start thinking back saying, wow, I wish I hadn't, uh, you know what I'm saying, tore my knee up and blew my arm out and killed my liver and shot my kidneys to kingdom come. I wish I hadn't fried my brain. I wish I hadn't. You'll start understanding at some point. But your body's not bad. The material body's not bad. The body is good. It's made by God. And incredible baggage was transferred to us from our religious forefathers. Incredible baggage was transferred to us regarding human sexuality being bad, food and drink being bad, the natural world being bad, things around us being bad, recreation being bad, enjoying pleasure being bad. It's just bad, bad, bad. When we get to heaven, it'll all get fixed. Let me take out the Greek Platonism for a minute and just give you the Bible truth for a few minutes. God the Father, Almighty, created heaven and earth. And the goodness of creation declares the goodness of our God. You learn about any artist by looking at their art. Which means, if you've read Poe, he's one messed up dude. Are you with me? Hearts beating under the floorboards of the house. I mean, just what what inspires that in your mind to write that? You know what I'm saying? Now, it's, it's riveting and you need to read it. But I'm just saying it gives you insight. I'd be scared to death to meet Stephen King. Would you like to go to a bed and breakfast and find out Stephen King is staying there? And you and your wife are spending the night, you know. And I mean, I, he comes up with some stuff, man. Okay. Now, here's what I know from the world of art and literature and and. Listen, for architecture and, and you learn about architects and artists and pe- by looking at their art, what they build, what they create, what songs they write. Listen, does anybody in here think Taylor Swift's had a little trouble in the love department, <laughs> in the relationship department? You say, why? Well, just have you heard a song? OK, she's got a little rocky road in the love department, in the relational department. OK, and I'm not criticizing her. But she's, she's got some great music. Okay, but it's born. It's who she is and what she's lived. Uh, Adele. It's come out in the music. You know what the Bible writers say? Look around you if you want to know about God. Have you seen a flower? Have you seen a hummingbird? Have you seen the ocean? Have you seen a mountain? Have you felt the breeze? Have you watched the leaves take color? Have you watched the grass come to life in the spring? You want to learn about God? The Bible writers say everything around you is speaking right now about the Creator which made it. Let me read from Psalm number 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds and animals of the wild, all the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and everything that swims through the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Now that's what the Bible writers felt about God, that you could look at nature and know, listen, a complicated design like this indicates there is a designer somewhere. Here's what uh, Paul said, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, that creation reveals the qualities of the Creator. Listen to this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Where were they seen? Where was God's nature and His attributes seen? All around us is what He... Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now what Paul said is anybody could look around and say, hmm, there's a God. It's just obvious. Where there is design, there is a designer. Where there is art, there is an artist. Exactly. And wherever there is engineering happening, there must be an engineer somewhere who set the thing up and built the processes and made it work a certain thing. Now, the very first thing the Bible teaches about God, now here's the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. The very first thing the Bible teaches us about God is not His almightiness or not His judgment or not His love. The very first thing we learn about God in the Bible is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first thing we learn about God is that God is the Creator. We learn about how we got here and how this world got here. And man, if you ever just stand and look at the mountains or the ocean, you're just like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. You just feel the tug of your heart towards a Creator. And you just know that this just didn't... There it is. There was some cause out there. That cause that made all of this happen was God the Creator. The apostles loved Jesus very much. I think that's very clear by reading the New Testament. And the apostles believed that when they had related, they had known, they had entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, after hearing the conversations of Christ, uh, show us the Father. Have you been so long time with me? And have you not known me? I and my Father are one, Jesus said to them. After hearing all of these things and living life together for a few years, the apostles believed that in Jesus Christ they had actually met the Creator. So when John wrote his gospel, his biography of Jesus, here's how John wrote his. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. It's capitalized. It's a person he's speaking of. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in with God in the very beginning. So before creation, through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. Now they believed that Jesus was God in a body and they had met the Creator who was with God from the beginning and set it all in motion. And the apostles passed this teaching on to their disciples, which became to us, looking back, the early church fathers who pulled some of these teachings together. And the early church fathers taught, because of the apostles' teaching to them, they taught that Everything in creation is good. Creation is good. Creation is to be enjoyed. All things are to be received with thanksgiving, Paul said. Just enjoy it. Give God thanks for it and enjoy it. This material world was created for 
you. Yet, you and I both know that evil is present with us also. Something is broken about this world. Something has entered in that should have never been here. Evil is with us in this present world. And we know further from the Lord's Prayer that the evil one is here with us in this present world. God did not create evil. Evil is the product of God's creation, abandoning abandoning its original creative uh, uh, mission. And when, when the creation goes off the rails and abandons its design and rebels against God, that rebellion against God is called sin. And sin has unimaginable consequences. Just unimaginable. So, what story is the Bible telling? This is like big picture now. If you just, you know, 30,000 foot looking at the Bible, what is the big story? Because you can get lost in there with genealogies and poetry and proverbs and wise sayings and chronicles and countings and, and you can get lost in the story if you get down too deep in the weeds without the understanding of what's being said. What story is the Bible telling? Much of what the church has taught, as I've already illustrated, is the merging of Greek paganism, Platonism, and Christianity and religion. The result of that is a theology, a belief system that promotes death as something to be welcomed because it is the means whereby you get to heaven. In other words, death now is looked at as a good thing. And boy, if I just go ahead and die, then I can go on to the other side where everything is right and I can live in heaven uh, forever with God for eternity. The problem is that's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible's actually teaching that death is not your friend. Paul actually just came right out with it and said, death is your enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. whole thing's about the resurrection. And in that chapter, Paul actually says the last enemy that's going to be destroyed is a death. Now, don't tune me out. This is critical. The goal of salvation is not for you to escape your body so that you can go to heaven for eternity. That is not the story the Bible's telling. The goal is an incorruptible body via a resurrection so that you live forever in a renewed heaven and earth. This is the story the Bible's telling. Not some glad morning I'll fly away to live on God's shore for eternity. That is not the story the Bible's teaching. No one is going to live in heaven for eternity. We've been a little reckless with our language. You say, well, I want to go to heaven and live with Jesus for eternity. Well, you're going to be lonely because Jesus is coming back to the earth. So where will you be? (laughs) You say, well, I'll be out there in heaven. But Jesus will be down here is what the Bible's teaching. He's returning to this earth. Do you remember his words to the If I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And where I am there, you are going to be also. We're going to be together. Okay? We're going to be together. And then we're going to zoom away. That's not the story the Bible's telling. The story the Bible's telling is about something happening right here. 
You were never meant, you were never designed, you were never created to be disembodied spirits. In other words, to get out of that body is not the goal. You were never designed to be a disembodied spirit, which explains a lot of the reason you're uncomfortable at a funeral home. It explains why you're uncomfortable around death. It explains to us all why death is unsettling and uncomfortable and feels foreign and unnatural. Because Paul said death is the enemy. You were never created for death. The body and spirit were never intended to be separate. You were created to be a a spirit in a body, not out of a body. And so anything out of the body, which is death, is bizarre to us and uncomfortable. And we, you just feel like this when you're around death, always. You say, why? Because that's not what you were created for. Let me go a step further now. Neither were heaven and earth intended to be separated. Now, what's your map for brain around this for a minute? Neither was heaven to be way out there in our thinking and earth to be way over here. The separation of body and spirit, the separation of heaven and earth, the Bible is teaching that that was caused by creation's rebellion against God, sin. And this is what sin did to humanity. This is what sin did to the earth, the creative world, the universe. And the great message of the Old Testament from 30,000 feet is basically this. God's going to send His Messiah and fix it. That's basically the sentence of the Old Testament. God's going to send His Messiah and get this mess fixed. It's all broken. What are we going to do? God will send His King. God will send someone to rule. God will send someone. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we're going to call His name Emmanuel, God with us. These are all the Christmas verses, you know. Uh, God will send us a ruler from Bethlehem who will rule over the world again. God's going to send his Messiah and get this right. Now, let's think about heaven this way. Heaven is God's domain. However you want to picture heaven, that's where God's domain is. God is in heaven. Okay. Now, I'm not sure you can Google map where that is and drop a pin. Is that test testing you at all? You say, but where is it? Ah, That is one great question right there. Where is heaven? It's wherever God is. Could we agree on that? God's there. And He rules from there. You say, yeah, but where is it? It's somewhere. (laughs) Because there is a God. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that He rules? So wherever that is, God is there and in His domain... The Bible keeps calling this heaven. That is God's domain. Now, geographically, where is it? I'm going to leave that for a minute. You're getting out of my pay grade pretty quick here. More and more as I study the Bible, I'm thinking different dimension, not geographical location. Can you absorb that a second? I know this is happening really fast. Different dimension. Maybe not geographic location. In other words, does anybody think you can get Google directions to say nine million light years, hang a right, go down here, there is the throne. There is, I'm not sure heaven is like that. I think God is omnipresent, but he rules and reigns from a place called heaven. And it could be, it could be right here, but in another dimension. Does that make sense? Don't think physical. Think beyond physical for a minute. 
Here's what I do know. The earth is a physical place. And I can't Google earth that. (laughs) I do know where the earth is. It's right here under our feet. We're here. I know where the earth is. And this is man's domain. God rules in his domain. And man rules in his domain. But here's the curious thing. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The two domains overlap. The two domains are overlaid in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God meets with man every day. God and man are having fellowship. And I say man, I mean Eve too. I'm talking mankind, humanity. God and humanity are just fellowshipping and there's access. You don't have to space travel to get to God. God walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve don't have to go outer space to heaven. Heaven has come down on earth and God is walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. Whatever heaven and earth are in the first three chapters of your Bible, they are overlaid on top of each other. They are somehow, let's say, interconnected, but they are overlaid in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, if you understand the history of ancient Near East and the writings of ancient Near East, what you understand is Genesis is being described by Moses as a temple. Eden is being described by Moses as a temple. When Genesis is giving out creation, God created this, God created that, and here are the rivers, and here is the mountain, what's being described right there is an ancient temple by Moses. All the ancient temples built that way, whether it's the Tower of Babel or the Ziggurats or the Pyramids or the Hanging uh, Gardens of Babylon with rivers flowing and mountains and staircases, what's being described by Eden in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is, is a temple for God. And so in every ancient temple, if we went to the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of Apollos or the temple of Diana or the temple of Isis, it just doesn't matter. Whatever temple you go to, in that temple you expect to find an image of that God. Does that make sense? Sometimes they're outside, sometimes they're at alcoves at the entrance, sometimes they're in a big room like this and the the idol is set up. When you go to the temple of the idol of whatever God, little g, you expect to go into the temple and there you will see the image, the depiction of that particular God. When God built Eden, when God designed the Garden of Eden as His temple, He did not put a statue of Himself in the garden. Instead, the Scripture tells us something very countercultural, very not like the paganism of this world. God created the temple, and in the temple, He placed living images of Himself. And the living images, in those days, were called Adam and Eve. They were living human beings made in the image of God, and these living icons reflected God in this created world. The humans had power to rule. Very clear from the Scripture. The humans had power to to, to make decisions. They had free will. They had creative abilities. Everything about the human beings, just like a work of art, reflected the Creator that had made them. They were living icons of God. Living images of God. See, now many of us are so conflicted because we were taught that the Bible was telling a story of how we leave the earth, a plot line that talks about sinners having their sins forgiven so that after death they can go to eternity in heaven. 
But that's not the story the Bible says. Jesus wasn't crucified, resurrected, and, and so that you can just go to heaven and chill out for eternity. I don't, I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand what our traditions taught us about what we would be doing for all of eternity. In your mind right now, what do you think you're going to be doing? Harpsichording? You see what I'm saying? I mean, floating, just chilling, just what are you going to be doing for eternity in heaven? Because you're not going to be eternity. It's not like that. Somehow we've messed this language up. God actually created you for the earth and the earth for you. And he has a mission for you on this earth. The Bible is telling a story, I guess if I can sum it this way, about God's kingdom. This is about a king and his kingdom. That's what the Bible story is about and how the kingdom got broken and how God sent a new king to fix it. It's about a story about a king, the kingdom of God. Now, in the New Testament, they use these words interchangeably, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus apostles, Jesus disciples, they would say, or even Jesus said this all the time. Remember the parables? The kingdom of heaven is like unto a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like unto the kingdom of heaven. You say, what's with all that kingdom of heaven talk, Jesus? He's telling you the overarching story of the Bible. It's about God and his kingdom and how you fit into this kingdom. There was a kingdom with overlapping realities of heaven and earth, torn apart by the rebellion of the created world and the human beings. And now heaven and earth are ripped apart and God's been trying to reconcile it and bring the kingdom back together. Let me say it another way. The Bible is telling a story about creation and recreation. Creation and recreation. Let me show you the bookends in your Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Revelation 21 that's the end. So I mean, it's just 22, but this is the end. Revelation 21. Here's what he says. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You say, what everything is he talking about? He's talking about, we're going to get it fixed back the way it was in the beginning. We're going to take everything that's broken now and I'm going to fix it. The way it was in Genesis 2 and 3 is the way we're going to go back to overlapping heaven and earth realities where people are reflecting living images of God, ruling and reigning over planet earth. So what is the relationship between heaven and earth? God's clearly created them from the beginning as separate but connecting or overlapping entities. Heaven is God's domain where he rules and reigns. Heaven is ruled by God. It's where His will is always done. He is the one who decides what's good and evil. There, His will is always followed. But many people think of heaven as a place filled with little naked angel cherub babies with harps floating on clouds. That is not a Bible picture. That is not the reality of what heaven is. The Bible is describing something very different. Like heaven is another dimension. It's both a place and it's also a place where it's maybe a place, but it's also where God is and his will is always done. What we do know is the contrasting place is earth, the physical location where humans live and rule. I'm reading Genesis 1 now. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. 
Are you with me so far? So that they may rule over, and then he lists everything that he created, and they were living images of God. God created the humans from the earth to be earth-dwelling image bearers of Almighty God. We talk about it this way at Cornerstone. Our lives were intended to be angled mirrors, <clears throat> reflecting God's goodness to creation, everything that God is reflected through our lives to creation, and reflecting all the worship and praise of this creation back to our Creator. We were created with a divine vocation to represent God by being like Him and doing on earth for Him, His His will. We were to fill creation from the beginning, it's clear. Go and fill the earth. We were created to fill the earth with more image bearers of Almighty God. All the while, we were commissioned to organize and engineer and create and make art, plant gardens, build roads, make bridges, organize, do wonderful things with what God has given us. And when the Bible opens, God's domain and man's domain have overlapped in the opening chapters. But as the humans descend into sin and rebellion against their Creator, the two dimensions are torn apart and you don't have access like you had it back then and God is not walking through your living room this afternoon the way He did back then with Adam and Eve as things are different. And the Bible from that point starts talking about God's mission to reunite the two realms together, how to get the kingdom of God. Listen, Jesus, when He showed up, you know what He started telling people? kingdom of God is here. It's here. They're like, well, when the kingdom comes, Jesus like, it's here. <laughs> you say, why? Because I'm here, and I'm about to kick it off right now. It's here. The kingdoms are coming back together right now. I am here, and I am how the kingdom is going to get restored. And even now, the kingdom of God is already within you, he told them. It's already working. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated. Now, it hasn't come to full fruition, but we're in the inaugural stage. And many believers believe that by believing in God, we get our sins forgiven, so we get to go to be in heaven for eternity when we die. That's just not the story of the Bible. And if you believe you're going to live in eternity in heaven with God, it actually prevents you from embracing your vocation right now. You have a right now vocation. And the New Testament is telling a very different story. It matters how you live right now. Because you're going to come back and live here. And some of you are never maybe going to leave here. If the Lord returns this afternoon, there will be a resurrection. There will be a resurrection. Amen. Tiffany will be back. My dad will be back. Your family members will be back. The Bible says that those who sleep in Christ, He will bring with Him. They will be back via a resurrection. You say, then what? Well, now we're going to get on with the kingdom. We will rule and reign with Christ. Because if they come back via resurrection, Paul tells us, those who go before you, just, just hold on. Now you get your resurrection. You will be changed. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not waiting for a mass exodus so that earth can go to hell in a handbasket. We're waiting for our change. 
But while we're waiting for our change, we're not supposed to be sitting around on our hands saying, well, it's all going to hell in the handbasket. Just burn all this down and let it all blow up. One day Jesus will fix it all. Jesus is already trying to fix it all right now. He's already supposedly working through you. You're already supposed to be living by kingdom values right now. You're supposed to be saying right now, we are kings and priests unto our God. I am made in the image of God. You say, but pastor, aren't we citizens of heaven? Isn't that what Paul taught us? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought that up. I'll read it. It's Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven as we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in a realm called heaven. And we are waiting from the ruler of that place, the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, okay, and he's going to take me back to heaven. Wait a second. Just because you're a citizen of somewhere doesn't mean you live there. My good friend Elijah Marar and Claudia have a son named Christian. Claudia and Elijah have lived all their lives in Romania and so has Christian. Christian's a U.S. citizen. He's born here. He's a citizen of America. He's never lived in America. He's always lived in Romania. You say, well, he's not American. He's as American as you are. He's got all the rights you have. Every right you have as a citizen, he has because he is one of us. You say, well, he doesn't live here though. Yeah, he doesn't know a lot about our culture. That's true. From another place, but he is one of us. Paul's point is this. In the Roman world, you do, see, America skewed our thinking because we're so big and so dominant and we've always lived here and you've always, most of you have always been inside the country unless you're from a military family probably. You don't have to live in a country to be a citizen of that country. You don't have to go to a country to be a citizen of that country. When Paul was writing to the people in Philippi, the exact opposite was true. Philippi was a Roman colony. They were Roman citizens, many of them living in Philippi. And Paul wrote to the people in Philippi and said, our citizenship is in heaven, whereby we wait from the Lord Jesus Christ to come back to us. Many living in Philippi were Romans all the while living in Philippi. Here's the curious thing. If you research Roman history, what you'll determine is the Roman government didn't want them back. The Roman government never recalled its citizens. It actually sent them out to the colonies to colonize. Rome did not want their citizens to return to Rome and live within the Roman walls. Rome wanted its citizens to live in the colonies like Philippi, immersing the people in Roman culture, Roman values, Roman citizenship, and Roman... They wanted them to take Rome to the colonies to turn the colonies into Rome. Does that make sense? They didn't want all the citizens to move back to the city of Rome or in the the boot of Italy uh, region of the Roman Empire. So interestingly, Paul in the next verse starts talking about the resurrection of the dead. Watch this. Who by the power that enables him, Jesus will bring everything under His control. This sounds like the Old Testament. God's going to send His King and make it all right kind of language. That He's going to come back and take control of everything and He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be alike unto His glorious body. 
What Paul is saying is that Jesus is risen from the dead and therefore the kingdom is in play right now. And what God did for Jesus, he's going to do for you. You're going to get a resurrection too. Jesus has risen and the creation has been redeemed and you have been redeemed. You just haven't seen it play out fully yet. But his resurrection was the beginning of God's heaven and earth renewal project. To snatch us away to heaven defeats the whole point of restoring the earth. Who's going to live here if we're all in heaven? Have you ever asked yourself any of these basic questions about what we were taught in our traditions? God is reuniting heaven and earth and your mission, if you're a believer, is like Philippi, to recolonize earth with life from heaven. You're to bring heavenly life down to earth through your life, your redeemed life, your born-again life in Jesus Christ. You're to be colonizing. Let me say it in very cornerstone language. God left you here on this earth to make disciples. And if God took us all to heaven, there would be no disciple-making. Just imagine. Johnny, have you received Christ as your Savior? Yes, I baptized you. Right to heaven he went from the baptistry. Be the launching point right there. We just launch people to heaven from the baptistry. We ought to build a catapult or something just to pry it one Sunday. Just launch them up. You say, well, why are we all still here? We've been saved and baptized. Because you're supposed to be making disciples. You're supposed to be spreading the message and trying to reunify heaven and earth until the king comes and really does it. You're to be living out those heavenly values or kingdom values right now. You're to be a living image of God right now. And interesting enough, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. When Paul ends the resurrection chapter, it's a long chapter, 58. When Paul goes through that whole chapter and gets to the end of the chapter and makes his conclusion, you would expect, based on what we've been taught, for Paul to say, okay, so now just wait till you die and we're all out of here. High five. And we'll go live with Jesus forever in heaven and everything will be good. That's what the resurrection's all about. But that's not the way Paul ended it. After 57 verses of talking about the resurrection, Paul gets to the end of 1 Corinthians and says this, Therefore, let me sum it up. Because of the resurrection, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. What do you all think the work of the Lord would look like for us? Anybody got any ideas on that? Maybe proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and living out kingdom values and, and reflecting Christ to the world, raising our families to, to, to be little, little tastes of heaven on earth, teaching our kids about God and our neighbors about God. So here's what he says. Let nothing move you. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. At the end of the longest resurrection chapter in the Bible, Paul didn't say, high five, we're out. Instead, he says, high five, you're in. Stay right here. Because the resurrection is coming. And the earth will get its resurrection and you'll get yours. But just for now, you are part of the kingdom of heaven. But you are also part of the kingdom of earth. You're in an earthly body. And until you get that transformed body, you're, you haven't fully realized it. I get that. But even now, Paul says, be steadfast, 
unmovable, always abounding, because everything you do for the Lord is transformative. It will be rewarded. It is to be celebrated. This is why the Creator of heaven and earth has put you here on planet earth. Let me give it to you one more time. Our destiny is not an incorrupt, our, our destiny, sorry, is an incorruptible body through a resurrection so that we can live forever in a restored, reunited heaven and earth. This is how you were created in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And everything that's happened between there and now is to get us back to that. And God will do it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be unmovable. Know what your mission is. We're not looking forward to flying away. We're looking forward to leading our neighbor to Christ. And their children to Christ. And discipling our own children to be disciple makers. And we're looking forward to being everything that God wanted us to be. Let me close this way. You know, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer echoes this kingdom narrative. Our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Pray tell where it's going to come. Here. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Now do we expect the unsaved to live out God's will here on earth? No, that's our work. And by praying God, let it happen, we are standing side by side with Jesus, our King, and we're echoing the very words that He said to His Father, Father, we're praying Your kingdom come. I guarantee you that's enough to think on for a week. I'll podcast some of that this week, let you chew on that one more time. You're going to have questions. Send them in. And we're going to answer them. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, thank you for stretching our understanding this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be students of the truth and students of your word and learn which words we can trust and which we need to maybe let go of. Father, we don't want to be distrustful of every word. We want to learn to hear the right words and believe them and let you show yourself to us through those beliefs God this morning we embrace the simple truths we've learned you are the creator your God almighty we call you this morning our father and you have made the heaven and the earth and Lord we've been a little confused about all of that heaven and earth part and what happens in our salvation and after we die in the resurrection and Lord I pray that you would Help us to reorder this and re-understand this according to your word and according to truth. Lord, let our takeaway this morning be that you are the creator. Because of our sinfulness, we've damaged not only our relationship with you, but creation. But God, you love us so much, you're not going to let it go at that. You're going to restore it. You're going to make it right, which you have done through Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you in a personal way, in a saving relationship, I pray that today they would be saved. For everyone who does know you in that relationship, Lord, I pray that their hearts are being challenged right now about what they believe and about what their mission is right now. 
God, I pray that you would shake to the very core the people who are hearing this message, that they would not wait until we fly away to heaven to live for you. But Lord, we'd understand you put us here right now to live for you. And the work you've called us to do will not start in eternity. It has already started. And many are just sitting idle while the kingdom comes to fulfillment. God, show us how to plug in to the narrative and live out what you want us to be. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've never received Christ as your Savior and your heart's been stirred up in these last few weeks, as you reacquaint yourself with Almighty God, Jesus Christ, who He sent to this earth, if you've never put your saving faith, your belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I want to invite you this morning to do that right now. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you give a speech. The only thing I'm going to ask you to do is if you need to be saved, if you need to call upon Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask that you in a very still, quiet way, just lift your hand and say, Pastor, I want you to see my hand. I'm one of these people that need to pray with you right now. And I'm going to pray for you right now. Just slip it up, put it right back down. God bless. God bless. I see them. God sees them more importantly. Would you put your hands right back down? If you lifted your hand, I want you to pray with me as I pray for you. Make your prayer to God something like this. Dear God, you've seen my hand, you've seen my heart this morning. God, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I, I need you. I have messed things up royally. And God, I'm coming to you today because I know that you're the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So this morning, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. Lord, by your sacrifice on the cross, you died for me. You substituted yourself for me. And Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and my Savior today. I put my faith and my trust that you are who you claim to be. You're everything the Bible says about you and much, much more. And this morning I call you my King and my Savior and my Lord. And for the rest of my life I will live for you. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. I'm so thankful you received Christ this morning. For those of you who prayed with me, I would challenge you this morning just to let someone know that you prayed that prayer. It's important that somebody can just hug your neck and pray for you. Damon, will you do me a big favor? Damon, just slide to the back of the auditorium there. Damon's going to be right back there at the back of the auditorium following this service. One of our wonderful deacons. He looks a little scary, but he's a great guy. Damon's a wonderful, gracious uh, servant of the church. Listen, if you prayed that prayer with me, and I know many of you did, I, I wish you'd just go back and just find Damon it's in that red shirt and just say, Damon, I don't know what to tell you except I prayed that prayer this morning and received Christ. And let Damon pray over you and be a friend to you. J.D., is that you back there? I see. Yeah, there's one of our elders right there. Thank you, guys. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together and you'll be dismissed. Get ready for that watermelon, those hot dogs, and everything that's waiting for you. Maybe you'll be motivated. See, if nothing else, church motivates you, go make some homemade ice cream this afternoon, okay? All right, let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you on Wednesday night.